Hello and welcome to this episode of A World to Win. We have a really special episode for you this week dedicated to the memory of my friend and mentor, Leo Panich. So this week I'm talking to Max Shanley, uh, who is a socialist strategist and organiser and Leo's very close friend and mentee. And Sam Gindin, uh, the former director of research for the Canadian Auto Workers Union and longtime collaborator of Leo's, including on his magnum opus, The Making of Global Capitalism. It is such an honour to be able to talk to two of Leo's closest friends about the legacy of this truly brilliant man. And I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Make sure you use this opportunity to check out Leo's work if you haven't, particularly that brilliant book, The Making of Global Capitalism, but also his most recent book with Colin Lee's Searching for Socialism and many of his other articles, including uh, those published in the Socialist Register, which he edited with Greg Albo for many, many years. Without further ado, here is my conversation about the incredible Leo Panich with Sam Gindin and Max Shanley. Rest in power, Leo. This week, I am joined by Sam Gindin and Max Shanley for a special episode of A World to Win in memory of all of our friends, um, Leo Panich, who very tragically passed away um, at the end of, uh, of last year. And we're going to be talking today a bit about Leo, the man, the activist and the academic. So I'm delighted to have both Max and Sam with me here today. Now, Sam, I want to ask you a bit about how you got to know Leo. You were both born to first generation immigrants in Canada, him to Ukrainian and you to Russian parents. Um, and you kind of grew up in that context and came to have similar politics and obviously work together extensively over the years. How do you think that growing up um, in that context in Canada shaped both of your politics? And yeah, how did you, how did you get to know Leo? We met at university. We were about 17. I think it was, uh, it was the early 60s. And in Manitoba, you could start university after grade 11. We grew up in North End Winnipeg, which was really formative. I, I don't want to overstate this in the sense that you can look at uh, families who grew up in North End Winnipeg, and one of them would turn out to be a socialist, and one would have different interests. But North End Winnipeg really had a socialist subculture, various mm. kinds of socialism, all kinds of debates, uh, but it really was in the air. I mean, in the early 50s, in the middle of McCarthyism, which also affected Canada, North End Winnipeg was electing a communist alderman consistently. So North End Winnipeg was uh, vital. And of course, it was also the 60s, which mm. was another influence. And uh, and we had a mentor at the university called Saigonic. We were in the same very small seminar together who kept asking us questions about why does that happen and what has it got to do with power? I think a couple of things about the North End were also very important. The fact that it was a subculture, the fact that it was more in the air, I think had an influence on us in terms of how profoundly, if you're really going to build socialism, how profoundly it was a cultural question, not just an economic question. Because, again, as I was saying earlier, it was just in the air in Winnipeg. Mm. So that made it, uh, you know, that made it really something special. And we retained a lot of our friends. We keep meeting friends from Winnipeg as we grew up and find out that they also moved to some variant of socialism. That was quite common. It's interesting to have that kind of that local perspective um, because Leo was also such an internationalist and he had that internationalist viewpoint throughout his whole life and not just in his academic work. One thing that always struck me was that he seemed to know so many people on the left all over the world and he was constantly kind of working hard to check in on them, maintain those connections and offer mentorship and support, particularly to young socialists throughout kind of Europe and, and the Americas. He kind of made it his business to look after everyone, which is, I think, quite a rare trait. Yeah, I'm just, you know, struck by what an important trait that was and thinking about how we can kind of work to continue that work that Leo did by trying to kind of build up those international connections and uh, foster a truly global socialist movement that's also embedded in, in culture in the way that you were just saying. Yeah, you know, I mean, 
the local is so important. I mean, you know, I mean socialism is a, a universalist idea. So if you're not an internationalist, you're not a socialist. So that, that is fundamental. But, but the question of how much you can help international struggles is limited if you don't really have a base in your own country. Mm. So, so there, there, there's a couple of dimensions of this. I mean, one of this is that you have to build material power in your own country. If you really want to help in big ways like transferring technology or canceling the debt, you have to have power to do that. But I think one of the things that Leo saw that was so important internationally was not so much chasing after every apparent breakthrough and cheerleading it, but really saying we had to soberly analyze everything because all of these rebellions of some kind or resistance of some kind, they were experiments. They were people trying to do something different. And we had to learn from them. A lot of them, most of them weren't actually successful. But we had to actually say, well, what can we learn from this? And in Leo's case, it was also passing on the knowledge that he had developed over time that he wanted to share with people. So I think that was you know, that, that was really fundamental to his internationalism. Mm. How do we share what we have? How do we learn from all these experiments? And to be honest about how much, you know, what could we really help with, wasn't that clear? We could try to prevent our countries from intervening, interfering in uh, their developments, uh, trying to destroy them. We could, of course, do that. When there was a very specific kind of struggle, we could help with that. But again, if we didn't have the power, if we hadn't built something here, it was limited. And one of the things about struggling in each country is that if you do that, you're creating the space for others to struggle. Whereas if you're making concessions as a trade unionist in your own country, uh, you're just undermining workers elsewhere. So the struggle at home was really part of that kind of international struggle all the mm. time. Max, how did you get to know Leo? Uh, so I read Leo's work first. I was heavily influenced by what was then the end of parliamentary socialism. And a few years later, after I first read the book, I had the pleasure of working on a book called The Best of Ben, uh, a book by Ruth Winstone, Tony Ben's former diary editor. I was doing research for it. And there was a specific speech in the end of parliamentary socialism uh, that was quoted that I wanted to get the whole thing f- for. But um, I couldn't find it anywhere online. So I emailed Leo and uh, got his email off someone. And that's how we first started communicating back and forth. Um, but he didn't have the full thing either. Uh, but we sparked up a friendship and we then met that November for dinner at the Gay Hazar in Soho. And that's really where our friendship began. Hmm. Leo has always been very active on on the UK left as you mentioned he knew people like Tony Benn who you also knew well Ralph Miliband supervised his PhD which was on the Labour Party why Max do you think he had such an affinity with so many leading lights on the British left and such an interest in the Labour Party I think a large part of it comes down to what is probably the sort of defining political relationship of his life that which he had with Ralph Miliband and even how they came to know one another sort of was entirely by accident Leo had won a Commonwealth scholarship to London School of Economics to study his master's I believe to begin with and uh, he'd written on his application form that he wanted to study economic planning expecting that he would be studying political economy But when he arrived, he found out that he'd been signed up for a course on public administration, and um, (laughs) which obviously was of no interest to him. And he was incredibly, incredibly bored during his first lectures. And uh, another student turned to him and said, uh, who he'd been speaking to previously, turned to him and said, you know, if you're bored, you should go downstairs. There's this guy Miliband giving these lectures on the state. Uh, I think that would be of interest to you. And Leo went downstairs and he said that the room was completely packed. The lecture hall was completely wow. packed, full to the brim. Uh, and these were the lectures that went on to form the basis for the state and capitalist society. Leo went mm. up to Ralph afterwards and tried to find out whether or not he could transfer onto 
Ralph's course. And Ralph said, well, I'm already oversubscribed by hundreds of people, but um, I'll see what I can do. And uh, he managed to get Leo on the course. And then Leo went on to do work studying the relationship between the Trajans and the Labour Party, which, you know, in and of its, uh, specifically the Labour government of the 1960s, and he built upon Ralph's work with parliamentary socialism to that end. So that's really where his sort of focus on the Labour Party came from. And then later on, he uh, followed the developments of the Labour left, the new Labour left in the early 70s. That left that was sort of centred around Tony Benn. Benn wasn't the leading figure due to his organisational skills or anything like that but due to the fact that he was more of a tribune for the membership and Mm. uh, Leo became very impressed by Ben because Ben had obviously he'd started on the sort of centre of centre right of the Labour Party and by his experience in office had moved to the left and um he was particularly uh, impressed by Ben's commitment to the fact that if you were to ever going, if you ever were going to democratise Britain, you would have to start with the socialist movement itself, and that mm. included not just the party but the trade unions and other forms of auxiliary organisation. And so um, that was how Leo started developing a relationship with the Labour Party and the Labour left itself. Sam, Leo was also a really prominent figure on the Canadian left as well. Can you tell me what you think his legacy will be uh, in that area? Sure, but I I just thought of an anecdote. Please do, yeah, please uh, share. As as Max was talking, because you'd asked me about uh, the international dimensions before. You know, going from Leo having trouble getting into Miliband's class to uh, a trip we had to South Africa to meet with trade unionists. And it was at a moment when the trade unions were trying to figure out how to actually get together, overcome their divisions. And they picked us up at the airport, rushed us to this hall. Uh, as we got to the hall, somebody quickly opened the door and said, you got to come in immediately. There's a debate on the state. And both sides, the people who are arguing with each other, are quoting Leo. And I thought that was... Uh, that was wonderful. Right. Both sides were quoting Leo. Okay, you asked, you asked about mm. Canada. Uh, first of all, Leo was really influenced by the situation of Canada in his own thinking because Canada was this rich dependency uh, related to the United States. And I, I, I think the experience of Canada raised a lot of questions about sovereignty, the state, and the particular kind of empire that was emerging. It was an, you know, it wasn't that the United States controlled us territorially. It was that Canada was a sovereign state, and uh, its connections were not through uh, primarily through the military, but through economic connections. So this was something that set him off in terms of thinking about a different kind of empire that was emerging. And uh, he was very influential in emphasizing that the state wasn't a victim of globalization. It was neither disappearing with globalization or a victim that it was actually an author of globalization that states wanted to develop through accessing global capital and therefore acted in a way that attracted global capital and set the conditions for internationalization of capital within their own country. So that was a very important thing that influenced Leo and then Leo in turn influenced how people thought about it. The sovereignty that he was emphasizing wasn't Canadian sovereignty, which was really to reinforce globalization, but popular sovereignty and the threat to popular sovereignty from free trade agreements that were really constitutions for corporations. So he was very influential in trying to take things beyond just a popular understanding. But the legacy he left was very much, I think, as a teacher and as a public intellectual. I mean, Leo Leo left an incredible uh, core of students, some of whom just took his class and he opened up their eyes to thinking differently. Undergrads might not have related to Leo that much at first, but he left them with ideas that uh, 
They later on in life, I got a lot of emails from people I'd never met who said they took an undergrad course from him. But in terms of his graduate students, his influence was that he was really trying to develop a far richer Marxism. Mm -hmm. And again, these are people who were all over the world. I just got a paper today from somebody in the UK. Uh, so, So he had this massive influence on students and as a public intellectual being interviewed, trying to create a new common sense. And that, of course, was something that was uh, international. It wasn't just in Canada. And he brought the lessons from England and from Syriza back to Canada. And he brought them back in a sophisticated way. It wasn't just about saying uh, there's wonderful things happening in Venezuela or there's wonderful things happening in Syriza. And when things turned out badly, he just kind of moved on to the next place where there was some mm. optimism. He actually wanted people to deeply understand because making socialism was difficult and it was going to have its moments of failures. And we had to learn from everything. I think those were the main kinds of influence that uh, Leo had. Max, Leo was really passionate about political education. When I interviewed him for um, Futures of Socialism, a book that I put out last year of essays, he was really, really focused on how we could build um, much greater levels of political awareness and engagement amongst the membership of the Labour Party. And I know that that's something that you've written and, written and spoken about a lot as well. How do you think we can take that work forward in the post-Corbyn moment? Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge what Leo's conception of political education was. It wasn't just a simple case of organising party schools and sitting people down in a room and teaching them something. It was also about learning from people's lived experiences and also just the very basic task of building a kind of movement that can uh, abolish the present state of things, very much tied to the central task of the Communist Manifesto, that is, you know, to organise the proletariat as a class and not just a class as a thing, but a class as a process you know, classes are constantly being organised and disorganised and reorganised. And part of the role of political education was to put the socialist movement at the forefront of that class formation and to raise the capacities of working people from being a subordinate class into the ruling class in their own society. And that meant building a wide array of educational institutions, cultural institutions, so that every section of working class life was touched by socialist politics. Mm. Um, Sam, you are a trade unionist um, and you've worked in a trade union um, before writing the book with Leo. And Leo was obviously also invested very heavily in building a strong and democratic labour movement. How do you think socialists can work to realise that ambition today? Yeah, well, I, th- I think that Max really started answering this okay. question. Um, one of the main, th- one of the things I really appreciated working uh, when I was in the trade union movement, in terms of my relationship with Leo, was that Leo wouldn't cater to the trade unions. He didn't see the role of intellectuals as just saying we have to support unions; they're good. He saw it as challenging them. And that was important for me because it meant that I had this check on me. Leo was constantly challenging what our union was doing and therefore also challenging me and pushing it. And so that was very important. And the direction that unions had to be pushed, and Max got at this too, was unions are inherently particularist organizations. They represent a group of workers in a particular workplace. They're not inherently class organizations, yeah. Uh, even though they, they represent working people, and so a fundamental, you know, that, that didn't matter that much after the war. There was a moment in time when there was growth and uh, the welfare state was emerging. That if unions just represented their own interests, uh, that might spread to others. Others, others could copy it. Uh, but, but that period ended, and when that period ended, unions didn't change. And the problem right now is that if that's all you do, you can't win. For one, if you're in the public sector, you'll be isolated. And if you're in the private sector, 
uh, you're going to be hammered with globalization. So there's a need to change what unions are without thinking that they can become political parties. But the key change is they start thinking of uh, capitalism as a class society and that they have to develop class relationships. And by that, I don't just mean with other trade unions. I mean that the community has to be thought of not as another place, but it's part of the class. It's where people live. It's what affects them in terms of the environment and education and healthcare and everything else. So that's one fundamental thing that, of course, has political implications. But I want to stress that a lot of a lot of the left is so defensive about what's happened to unions that trying to increase union density becomes a priority. We need more union members because we've lost so many. And that's very important. It's, it's absolutely important. But it doesn't get at the problem that there's a transformation in unions that are, is necessary. Making weak unions have more, you know, leading to weak unions having more members isn't the solution. We have to really think hard about what the transformation in unions might mean. And that's where the question of the party becomes so fundamental. I'm very skeptical about unions becoming transformed from just an internal dynamic. I think a lot of trade union leaders are either comfortable with saying there's nothing that can be done. It's neoliberalism, it's globalization, it's conservative governments, whatever it is. And it's lowered expectations. And I think a lot of labor leaders have gotten comfortable after some rough periods with lowered expectations. It makes their job easier. Yeah. On the other hand, I think that after decades of defeats, uh, a lot of trade union leaders don't have the capacity, don't know what it would mean to transform the union. And as far as the members are concerned, there's more pressures on them. They're very fragmented. They don't have any kind of institutional support. So I'm very skeptical about just saying something automatic is going to happen that'll turn this around. Either things will get worse or things will get better. I do think it requires the intervention of people, of socialists, people who have their foot in the trade union movement, but also outside of it, so they have the larger class perspective. And I don't just mean individual socialists, because as individuals, you end up getting trapped into the institution. You don't have the mechanisms to share this, to spread it. So it has to be an organized socialist intervention. And that's kind of what socialist parties have been about. And if we don't yet have socialist parties, then it has to be what organizations like Momentum and the Democratic Socialists of America have to very much think about. And I want to stress, it isn't just about more militancy, although militancy is always the condition for other things happening, it's, you know, it's really about embedding yourself in the working class. And it's not about policies. It's about a new kind of politics that has to emerge. And the working class is so fundamental to it. And I think that's the greatest challenge to us. How do we engage with the working class and how do we embed ourselves in a cultural way? Because changing this is very much a cultural change, which means it's long-term. Yeah, if I can just dial in there with a couple of points. The first thing is that, you know, we have to be honest about the way in which uh, uh, the role of trade unions in society has been co-opted by capital to a certain extent. Unions are themselves reliant upon capital accumulation and whilst they do want to constantly try and increase their membership, the neoliberalisation of society over the past 40 years has affected the trade unions themselves. And they've gone from being those sort of traditional trade union organisations of old into a more service model, um, more more in line with you know the British economy, for example, which has changed from being an industrial economy into more of a service economy. And the trade unions, particularly in Britain, reflect that. You know, lots of people criticise how they rarely, in, I hear people criticising how they rarely hear anything from their trade union, that every so often they'll get an email asking them if they want to sign up for life insurance. And um, but they, they rarely get emails asking them if they want to attend the next union meeting or if they want to, you know, partake in 
some training or anything like that. So I, I think that has to be noted that there has, due to neoliberalisation, been a massive sort of shift in the modus operandi of trade unions. And just to further add on Sam's point about trade union leaders, the role of the trade union bureaucracy was something that was actually, I think, of particular interest to Leo, particularly when it came into the relationship between the trade unions and the Labour Party, because throughout the history of the Labour Party, the trade union bureaucracy has always been a conservative force. And this was particularly shown during the Corbyn years, whereas during the Ben years, the Labour left tried to build a democratic relationship between themselves and the trade unions, i.e. by organising with trade union members to win constitutional reforms and so on. During the Corbyn years, that, that sort of relationship didn't exist at all. And the relationships between, uh, say, Momentum, for example, were far more bureaucratic with the trade unions than they were democratic. And that was part of the reason why the Labour left's advances in the party in terms of being able to transform the party um, were so limited because they were reliant upon not fighting for ideas but doing deals behind closed doors, which was, of course, what the trade union leaders wanted all along. But that just served to limit the advance of socialist politics, both in the party but in Britain as a whole. I don't know if Sam would agree or yeah. disagree with that. No, I, I I agree. I just want to add one part to it. and I, I don't want to make this sound depressing. I hope it just sounds sober so that we're kind of understanding what we're up against. Often when I go out to speak someplace, my wife asks me who I'm going to depress today. <laughs> but but I, what I want to what I want to add to what Max said, and I think it it is important to to emphasize. I, I, I agree with everything he said. Is that is the extent to which this has also affected the rank and file? That uh, the defeats have really lowered expectations of working people. The defeats have really. Uh, workers are more fragmented uh, in terms of competitiveness. We talk about the class inequality, but there's inequalities within the class that are so profound that affect class formation. Workers feel uh, they're dependent on, you know, their life experience teaches them that they're dependent on their boss to put social labor together. They, they can't do it on mm. their own. So their standard of living and, you know, they, they see they see the employer as the embodiment of science, technology, uh, access to finance, links to suppliers, links to markets. All these things, you know, have such an impact. And then there's the uh, workers are pushed into thinking in terms of the short term uh, just because of survival. So you end up with, uh, you know, real pressures on workers to remain fragmented, to try to solve their survival problems by working overtime, uh, young workers living at home, uh, going into debt, hoping that taxes will be reduced. And what happens is workers themselves, uh, they not in, not only get integrated into the system the way Max was talking about unions, they in a sense get integrated into reproducing neoliberalism. They try to solve their own problems on their own because they don't see the state doing it and they don't see the institutions they have in terms of social democratic parties or unions being able to do it. So, so so this is something that we have to take seriously. And it's only if we take it seriously that I think we can change it. I think we, we're moving now naturally into what I want to talk about next, which is Leo's academic work and his intellectual legacy. And, you know, he was a, basically a, a giant of the Marxist left on that front. I want to start by talking about the making of global capitalism, which if you're listening to this and you haven't read it, you must read it if you possibly can. Um, it is an absolutely fantastic book. It was really an era defining book for many on the left. Um, Sam, can you tell us a bit about the foundations of the book, which you co-authored with Leo? Um, the two of you obviously had a book before the making um, in and out of crisis, which looked at how the left had let the 2008 financial crisis go to waste. What made you want to put the book together? And yeah, what were the kind of intellectual foundations of, uh, of your argument? Uh, I'm going to ramble a bit because that's... That's absolutely fine. <laughs> that's such a big question. Um, yeah. I mean, Leo and I had always talked about doing a book together at some point. 
So when I retired from the union, the time was right in terms of what things were happening. We set out to do it, and it took us it took us a decade. Uh, so let me just say a few things about it. One is that globalization isn't something that happened naturally. I don't think Marx had it. Marx was perceptive when he said capitalism has this tendency to go everywhere, set, nestle everywhere, settle everywhere. But it wasn't quite true. Uh, when you bring the state into it, capitalism actually was also fragmented into different empires. So globalization had to be made. And we have to remember that in the first half of the century, in the last century, it didn't look like an international capitalism would survive. We had two world wars and we had a Great Depression. And we kind of forget that. So the question we were asking was, well, how did globalization get made? And it's an important question because once you understand that it can be, that it was made, it raises the question of, well, it's a social construct and how does it uh, get unmade? The U.S. was crucial to this making. And uh, we didn't figure this out as a puzzle. We actually looked at it historically. Now, what we saw as happening was that an empire of a new kind was emerging. It wasn't just that once there was a British empire or a French empire or a Dutch empire, and now there was a new, bigger empire. That wasn't what was happening. This was something that was actually, in a, in a way, the Americans were being anti-imperialist in the sense that they wanted to end this era of different empires who were relatively exclusive and wanted to keep these territories to themselves. They saw that this led to disaster, the depression, wars, and that those disasters would be repeated if there was that kind of competition between these different empires. So what the U.S. was setting out to do was to create a global capitalism that didn't have any separate empires, that states were sovereign. They weren't controlled by somebody else formally. They were formally sovereign. And the relationships wouldn't depend on military, although the military always backed this in ways we can get back to later. But they didn't primarily depend on the military. They depended on markets. They depended on the free flow of uh, capital. They depended on uh, available markets that capital wanted to access. So the promise was in each state, that if you enter this global era and structure and uh, obey its rules, you can develop. You will be able to develop. You will be able to skip stages of development, just like China being able to enter global capitalism and have access to markets and technology and investment really speeded up its development. So, so that was crucial in, in terms of uh, beginning to frame what happened. And as I said earlier, part of this was that you know, a lot of the the left was debating whether inter, the internationalization of capital was inconsistent with states. One or the other had to give. Either mm. states would be bypassed or you'd have to create new international institutions that were world governments. And none of that was true. What actually happened was that states were internationalized. Each mm. state began to take responsibility for supporting global capitalism inside its own borders. They were going to create the conditions for capital accumulation in terms of disciplining labor, subsidizing, subsidizing capital when it was necessary, treating foreign corporations the same as domestic corporations. In all those ways, they were actually part of the making of global capitalism. Uh, and what happened through this, which is so unique, is the extent of integration, the extent of mutual integration. It wasn't that the U.S. said, let's open up. Europe and restructure, you know, uh, bring capital back into Europe. They actually said that our markets are going to be open too. It wasn't just going to be the U.S. was going to make everything for the world. So what this led to was a mutual integration. They all depend on each other's markets. German investment goes into the American South. <clears throat> Finance flows. And they're so mutually interdependent in terms of suppliers and markets that the notion of inter-imperial rivalry is now something that is very hard to imagine. It, you know, you can have tensions between countries. You can have countries like China wanting to raise its status within the empire. But even China <clears throat> doesn't want to get rid of the American empire because they're so dependent on it. They want to operate within the American empire. And that's, and that's absolutely crucial. Capitalism's breakdown depends on what happens inside states. 
And that's one of the things that we were emphasizing was the struggle is actually, the class struggle is what we have to look at. It's the struggle inside states which are making global uh, capitalism that is so important. And you see this now. You know, if you look at what's happening in the U.S., it's not the conflict with China that is so fundamental. It's what it's the social decay and it's this dysfunctionality within the United States that's so important. In terms of China, for example, after all of Trump's rhetoric and attacks on China, what he ultimately ended up pressuring China to do was to open itself up more for American high-tech companies and for American financial services. In other words, for more liberalization, more of a neoliberal globalization, whereas China is actually begging America to act like a responsible empire, to not set up arbitrary rules. Now, I, I want to emphasize two other things about this that I think are important. If I can, do I have time? Yeah, of course. You've already answered all of my follow-up questions. So okay. please just keep talking because this is brilliant. <laughs> so so one, one thing that has to be recognized is, although the U.S. got special status from this kind of an empire, because its corporations could take advantage of a global world, uh, even if things were so-so in the United States, they could move elsewhere. So they're in a position to ultimately benefit from this. And the alternative was you would have, again, somebody like Germany rising up and saying, uh, we don't have access to resources. We have to start militarily winning them. We have to cut off our own markets, et cetera. So there, there were benefits to U.S., and especially because of the dollar. I mean, you know, people think of the U.S. as being weak because it runs a trade deficit every year, almost every year since the late 70s. Well, that's not a sign of weakness. What it's meant is the U.S. gets access to the global labor power and global labor value around the world without having to pay for it because money is flowing into the United States because it's absorbing the world's savings. So that was an example of strength. On the other hand, there are burdens because the U.S. carries a larger burden in terms of uh, the military, which diverts some resources from other social programs, but especially uh, it meant that the U.S. accepted restructuring. It actually meant that the U.S. accepted a loss of all kinds of sectors, textiles, lower wage, labor-intensive sectors, parts of the auto industry. So there was also a burden. And the pressures to compete, because that's what, that's what these rules were about, you couldn't compete by saying we're going to close our market. You couldn't compete by saying we're going to militarily attack Germany because we don't like what they're doing. You could only compete by becoming more competitive. And that meant uh, really squeezing the working class more, amongst other things. It meant that you were... And for the, for the U.S., it meant that the burden that I mentioned earlier was really borne by the working class. I want to emphasize this wasn't that the U.S. was losing its economic strength. The sectors that it lost, it showed that it had the ability to move into all the high-tech sectors, and it did that. It also moved into all the business sectors, which we sometimes don't pay much attention to. Doug Henwood said that the Marxists tend to not consider it really producing anything if it lands on your foot and doesn't hurt. I mean, that's <laughs> the fault. And the fact is, America had, you know, it, it's... Its power in terms of uh, consultancy, accounting, legal, engineering, software development, and especially finance is part of its economic strength. So, okay, so there were burdens on the working class, frustrations build up, and therefore you've got a frustrated working class that has no way of expressing it. The unions aren't strong enough. The left isn't strong enough. So they're vulnerable to things like Trump and the question of Brexit. And the point I want to make there, which Leo and I were just starting to develop in an essay we did in the Register on Trumpism, is that nationalism and internationalization were not inconsistent. Globalization was always legitimated, not by the United States saying it's a good idea, although sometimes people were attracted to American culture, media, etc. It was always legitimated nationally. The responsibility was on the nation state to say, this is good for us. This gives us access to markets, to technology. It brings capital in. So there was always this national development of globalization and internationalization. And in, in, in this context, it gets expressed everywhere. 
in terms of reaction against, well, wait a second, globalization isn't delivering. So it leads to a reaction. Uh, now, in the United States, it takes a scary form because you've got the legacy of slavery. You've got the rights to guns, which is so phenomenal. You've got all the macho stuff that comes from being an empire. So in the States, it takes a particularly scary form, although it can take a scary form elsewhere. And the challenge there is that the question of uh, can, can, can there be a left nationalism that, that isn't chauvinist? And, and, you know, that's something we can, we can get to. But there's also a contradiction on the right, which I want to emphasize. The right could mobilize these frustrations by channeling them in racist ways, xenophobic ways against immigrants. But the right has, has its own contradiction. And that is the right does not want to take on capital. And because it doesn't want to take on capital, it's left with globalization being diverted to something. And that can only go on for a certain amount of time. Now, it can be an extended amount of time. Maybe Trump would have won this election and would have run into another election. But at some point, you know, what gets exposed is the right doesn't have answers to people's frustration. Trump didn't bring back jobs to the American Midwest. Trump didn't restore a manufacturing base. Trump didn't improve inequalities. He actually aggravated them. Trump didn't get rid of the permanent insecurity that exists, even when unemployment is low, because of all the restructuring that's taken place in the lousy jobs. So the right, too, has contradictions that we have to recognize. And maybe I should stop. I've gone on uh, a bit long. No, um, Sam, thank you so much. That was that was brilliant. And as I said, I had a couple of follow-up questions for you and they were all answered there. So I think I'm, I'm going to go on to talk a bit more about Leo's thinking about the state and the Labour Party. Um, and Max, as, as you mentioned, he really continued the legacy of Ralph Miliband and his thinking about the state, who was trying to kind of bring thinking about politics um, and agency back into Marxist theory. What can the, the left learn about Leo's approach to the state and state power? I think it's important to uh, acknowledge that although Leo was obviously a student of Ralph Miliband and incredibly influenced by his work, particularly that of state, uh, the state and capitalist society and also Marxism and politics, he never shied away from the work of competing theorists, certainly not Palancis. It was quite funny. One of my friends messaged me uh, a few days after Leo's passing and said that he'd had some conversation with them at Red Pike Conference and uh, uh, he'd encouraged this comrade to uh, read Palancis. The comrade looked at him in shock and uh, Leo got very annoyed at the idea that, uh, you know, he was just dogmatic about one set of ideas because he wasn't. He, you know, your ideas should never remain static. They should be constantly evolving. And that also applied to Leo's interpretation of the state and the role of the state, both for capitalist society and socialist society. The state isn't just a set of institutions, nor is it just a, a type of relationship. It's both. And when it comes to the socialist approach to the state itself, it requires a strategy that isn't simply based around the idea that a small group of people will get elected and then they can just run the state as it is and they'll tweak a few levers and they'll do some nice things, they'll pass some legislation, they'll reorganise it slightly and then ev everything will be fine. It's actually about changing the way in which the state not only acts but the way in which it thinks of itself and to move from being a facilitator for capitalization to a facilitator of socialization and whereas at present you think of the concept of alienation as sim as in the economic sphere as a worker being alienated from their labor they're also alienated from the administration of things from the running of their own lives and it's about as much as bringing uh, working people into the day-to-day -day running of the state itself as anything else. You know, if you look at Leo's work, there's really three things that 
he's focused on. One was understanding the world, and he knew that that had to mean understanding globalization, the American empire, the state, and the state as a, as a key site of struggle. Uh, the other was that you needed agency. And that he did in this complex way, understanding uh, the limits of spontaneity, the, the, how difficult it was to address the question of class formation. And the third thing was the party, because that was so critical to class formation. And what Max was saying about the state is so fundamental. The revolution doesn't happen when a left government or even a socialist government gets elected. The revolution starts when that government starts transforming the state, because the state that exists is a capitalist state. It's developed over century, more than a century, and it developed to address the problems of a capitalist society. It doesn't have. It's not just who's there uh, and what their ideology is. They don't have the capacity. They don't know how. Nobody's learned how to actually administer a complex economy in a complicated way. I mean, they don't know how to really plan an economy, but they especially don't know how to plan it in a way that's also democratic, in the way that Max, uh, Max kept emphasizing. So a socialist government has to discover all of this, and it has to discover all of it while it's actually still trying to administer a capitalist economy, and also trying to figure out how you mobilize the population, because even when you get the government, still going to be a lot of workers who aren't very convinced about what you're doing. So you're trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to totally transform the state. And, and that means transforming unions in the state. You know, a lot of workers feel like, well, once you get a favor, uh, you know, a sympathetic government, now things will be easier for them. And they're still thinking in particular terms. The real question, if you're a worker in the state and for unions in the state is, well, what's different now? How do we act if we're administering social welfare or housing in a way that links up with the clients and has new structures to do that? So this question of the transformation of the state is something that uh, we know so little about, and it's going to be a point of discovery. And it also means that it's going to be bumpy because you're going to be having to invent all these things once you're there. But it, it absolutely means that you have to start preparing for it now in terms of understanding what you're up against. Because otherwise, workers will just get frustrated with the world not being wonderful once they got their party in power, and they'll leave you. They have to understand that this is just a step in a long road that's going to be very uneven. And that's what social transformation really means. If I can just add to that, I mean, you know, this question of, of state transformation was one of the many things that Leah was so impressed with about Ben. Ben famously raised uh, this particular question at Lake Pike Conference. I think it was either seventy, I think it was seventy six, about the usual problem of the reformer. You know, you the problem is for any socialist is that if you want to transform the state uh, and you want to transform the economy you still have to run it as it presently is at the time you're trying to transform it because otherwise you're harming the very people you're seeking to represent and claim to represent because they are reliant upon the system as as is for their livelihood. And it's grappling with that contradiction that is really a central task for all socialists today, I, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk as well, very quickly, um, Max, about his most recent book with Colin Lee's Searching for Socialism, um, which again, I'd really recommend listeners to uh, to go and check out. You can get it from the Verso website. So the first five chapters were published in about 2000 as the end of parliamentary socialism, and Leo and Colin updated it for 2020 with some more chapters on the Corbyn era. And Leo saw very clearly the challenges that the Brexit referendum would present the left and consistently argued that Labour should respect the result rather than trying to make a kind of Faustian pact with the establishment to stop Brexit. And ultimately, I think a lot of us would think that he was proven right. Do you think that the British left has learned any of the right lessons from uh, that experience and from listening to Leo? I'm not sure it has because we still have the residual effects of those that were on the Remain side and those who were on the Leave side. But one of the things I remember most from a conference 
party conference 2019 was something Leo uh, relayed to me that he'd heard at a Young Labour rally where uh, Len McCluskey was uh, on the panel with Leo and Len McCluskey made this speech. And he quite bluntly, you know, said to the the assembled uh, young people in the audience, the most important question right now is, are you... Are you uh, leavers, remainers, or are you socialists? And the entire crowd exploded because they finally got it. You know, mm. the question of leave and remain is sort of arbitrary now. And it was even then. The central question was where you committed to a socialist politics, a politics of, uh, you know, working class emancipation, or were you going to bury yourself in something that in the in actually in the grand scheme of things was rather trivial trying to reconcile the immediate tasks that labor government would have to face with this question over europe ultimately you know is what led to corbynism's downfall because people's minds were so focused on the question of europe that everything else sort of got pushed to the sidelines. Leo is emphasizing that at that at this point in time, the critical question for the left was the British state, not exit or staying in. Uh, that that was a question, but the immediate question, which would remain whether you stayed in or not, was to come to grips with the nature of the British state and take that on. That was a crucial thing to understand. If that was taken on, and if there is a moment when you are really starting to try to move to socialism, and then the relationship with Europe becomes a barrier because of the rules Europe is imposing, then the question changes at that moment in time. At that moment in time, the question would be, we want to democratically move to another society, and Europe is blocking it. And at that point in time, you would have built a base for taking on exit, and it would have been clear why you want to take it on in terms of you know democratic decisions. So it, it had to be understood that Brexit was a tactical question. And Leo was arguing that tactically, this was not the time. We weren't ready for it, and it wasn't a crucial question, which didn't mean that it might not become an important question down the road. Finally, I just want to finish up by asking both of you um, the same question. So... I mean, it seems pretty unreal that a man who had been talking so cogently about the impact of the pandemic on the world economy, and I know that I had conversations with him about this, I'm sure that both of you did as well, was ultimately taken from us by the virus. How do you think Leo would have wanted us to organise in the wake of this pandemic? What would his priorities for the left be? I think the immediate, I think what Leo thought the immediate task moving forward would just to, you know, use the opportunity that has been presented in front of us, one of crisis, as, you know, an impulse to keep on organising and to use the crisis as an example of, you know, the failings of the system itself and the failings of capitalist states to be able to adequately respond to the crisis we know this acutely in Britain, that the British state hasn't been capable of responding to a crisis of this nature. And it's been due to the fact that over the past 40 years, its capacity has waned. And, uh, you know, many people have been reliant on external organisations, you know, food banks, uh, clothes banks, so on, and the NHS. And, uh, it's important that it would be important now to make the case to not just defend those institutions, but to extend them. I'm on the same wavelength as uh, Max on this as well. You know, on the one hand, uh, I think we have to recognize that there are economic difficulties coming out of this pandemic, but the real crisis is one of legitimation. And that raises questions of ideology and organizing as being critical. Uh, so that that's one dimension of this. And part of that ideological issue is what Max was saying. And we, we have to learn something from this crisis, how unprepared we were for what happened. You know, there might have been a pandemic anyways, but how it played out had to do with how unprepared we were, 
you know, the extent to which we didn't stockpile necessary equipment, the extent to which we didn't give them immediately to frontline workers, the extent to which there had been cutbacks in hospitals and the healthcare system, but especially that if we were so unprepared for this pandemic, imagine how unprepared we are for the pandemic that's already around us in terms of the environment. I mean, that should be a really scary mm. thought because that pandemic uh, won't be fixed with social distancing and uh, masks and, and lockdowns. So it really points to the fact that uh, if we really want to deal with this problem and all the problems that have accumulated over this period of time, we do have to take on the question of capitalism. And I think the other dimension of it is that there's a lot of discussion about whether Biden himself and, and Leo was open to this, whether Biden himself might have to do relatively progressive things to get out of this crisis. And I guess my response to it would be, I, I, I would disagree with Leo in a sense. Immediately, capital kind of has a consensus that they have to do things that uh, they were opposed to before in terms of austerity versus and neoliberalism. Everybody now knows that you have to stimulate the economy. You have to do all kinds of things you wouldn't do in normal times. We have to be careful about assuming that this represents a fundamental change. This is temporary. And as soon as things stabilize, they're again going to be telling us, well, wait a second, we've got budget deficits. How are we going to deal with this? We've got capital that's flowing out because they're worried about these, about how we're handling things. And they want to go to someplace that's uh, safer for capital. So we're still going to face the fact that even governments that do some moderately progressive things won't solve the problems because these same governments uh, don't recognize that the options are really polarized. Tinkering isn't going to help. So, for example, with Biden, Biden ran against health care to assume that he's suddenly going to introduce universal health care in the United States. It isn't going to happen. He might improve it. He didn't promise to make unionization easier. And even the unions have given up on just pushing that. They're asking for minor reforms. He's going to tax the rich, but he's not going to tax them to the extent that's necessary in terms of taxing wealth on an emergency basis. So I think we have to prepare for the fact that sooner or later, we're going to face the same pressures we had before, and we have to prepare for that battle, and we have to learn the lesson from it that unless we can transform the working class, unless we can transform what socialist parties are, we cannot win this battle, that we somehow have to be able to fight on all those fronts and that it's going to take time. It isn't going to magically change. And the other dimension of this, which I want to flag, especially in terms of the United States, is that there's a lot of people who are projecting fascism. And we absolutely have to be worried about it. There really is a base in the United States that is scary. But it's more likely that that base will become, you know, a marginal right wing grouping that does isolated acts of terrorism rather than has an opportunity to really become a mass base or a mass party. What we saw from Trump was that uh, even people, and Leo was one of them, who thought that Trump would try to pull off a coup. Of course, Trump would try it, but he couldn't do it. Because the elites, the economic elites, were not interested in this. They didn't want to delegitimate themselves further. They didn't want an erratic Trump that they couldn't trust. And because the state itself, including the judiciary, including people that Trump had appointed, are still trying to replicate liberal capitalism that will be more authoritarian, that will be neoliberal, but isn't yet going to be fascist. So we should definitely be worried about it. But we have to remember, we, we can't fall into the trap of either saying, wow, we're relieved with Biden and we have to support Biden even if he returns to neoliberalism because the option is fascism. We, we, we can't stop fighting neoliberalism and we can't write off the working class, the working class, those sections of it that supported Trump by saying they're irrational and uh, they're on the verge of becoming fascists. We have to recognize that there were material reasons for why a lot of workers were alienated from elites and voted for Trump, and we have to figure out how to win them over. 
And the whole point about organizing is winning over people who aren't with you already. Thank you so much, Sam and Max, for joining me on this very special episode of A World to Win. Thanks, Grace. And thanks, Max. It was good to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you both.